this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on complicated grief. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes, your host. We're going to define complicated grief, examine the impact, identify risk factors, and explore tasks for successful grief resolution. And that can be complicated grief or simple or uncomplicated grief. Let's first talk about a few definitions. And most of these are probably common sense to you, but we're going to go over them anyway. Loss is any change that includes being without someone or something. Physical loss of something tangible like a person, a car, a house, a breast, or psychosocial loss of something intangible like a relationship through divorce or health through an illness. Loss of a, well, a job is kind of more tangible. A dream or a hope. Loss can be anything, and we can grieve the loss of, and we do need to grieve, the loss of a lot of things. Bereavement comes from the Latin root word to have been robbed. And when people are bereaved, uh, bereaved, they are experiencing loss. They feel like they've been robbed of something. Secondary loss, and we're going to talk a lot about these, are other losses that result from the primary loss. For example, if the primary breadwinner dies, then not only did you lose that person in your life, but you also lost the income from that person's job. And you could have other losses like the loss of a house or having to move because you don't have that income anymore. So there can be a lot of complex, interwoven, secondary, and maybe even tertiary losses if you want to look at it that way. Grief is the reaction or response to loss that includes physical, social, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual dimensions. When we are grieving, we are in a period of crisis. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, completely traumatic crisis. But when we are grieving, we are often experiencing increased HPA axis activation, our threat response system. We are not sleeping as well. We are probably experiencing hormone shifts. When we're grieving, generally the brain gets the idea that now's probably not the time to procreate. We got other stuff on our plate. Uh, so you're going to have some hormone shifts. Those hormone shifts affect the availability of neurotransmitters like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine, which means our mood emotional, our mood may also go down. In addition, you know, you have these physiological things going on, but you also have a lot of cognitive stuff going on after a loss when you are trying to reconcile it and alter that schema that you have. You had this schema that somebody, whoever it was, was going to be there henceforth and forevermore, and all of a sudden they're not. You had this schema that you are the parent and you will outlive your children, but when your child dies, oh my gosh, that doesn't fit with the schema. We've got to help the person cognitively reorganize that. And finally, mourning are rituals or behaviors associated with grief, and they can be courses of action in response to loss. Everybody mourns differently, and we want to make sure that we are sensitive 
to how different people mourn. Some people are very emotive. Some people are very withdrawn. Some people um, may turn to their higher power. Some people may not. Every person is different. And people are also different in how they conceptualize loss, partly based on their developmental age. Children who theoretically have object permanence but aren't adults may have difficulty understanding that mommy went away or the dog, you know, went away and is never coming back. They died. And understanding that concept of death is very challenging for for young children and can also cause a lot of anxiety in them. Symptoms of complicated grief. Separation distress involving intrusive distressing preoccupation with the loss, not necessarily just the deceased, but you can have separation distress in adults. This is not just a child thing. If you're you're a parent and one of your children passes away, heaven forbid, then you may be wanting to keep all of your other children closer. You may be wanting to keep your partner closer because you're afraid of, you know, what might happen. There's that separation anxiety. If I've got you here, then I have better control of your safety. We can see that in adults as well as children, and and we don't want to pathologize it. It is our protective mechanism of dealing with loss. When something is out of our control, which a loss is, whatever happened, it was out of our control, we can't get it back. We don't have the control. We don't have the power to do that. What can we control in our life? Well, I'm going to keep those people and things that I love close to me. And if I have to be separated from them, it may cause me great anxiety. Traumatic stress also happens reflecting specific ways the person was traumatized by the death and you can look at the way different people react to a loss and you know obviously this one was when i wrote this powerpoint i was thinking more of death but we do have a lot of losses traumatic stress reflecting specific ways the person was traumatized by the loss now one of these things and you know i don't want to get down in the weeds with this, but I do want you to reflect back to the um, 20, whatever it was, 2016 election and how people were, felt like they were robbed and they went through a grieving period when Trump got elected and there was a lot of traumatic stress surrounding that. What kinds of losses did they experience when that happened? Cognitively, in their hope, for the future, in their hope for a female president, whatever it was, a lot of people experienced a lot of losses. So how did they deal with that? Avoidance of reminders. Some people quit watching the news, quit doing that. They just, they kind of gave up. Um, Intrusive and painful thoughts, reflecting back on uh, what happened and the fact that they had no control over it and feeling defeated because they went out there and they campaigned and they voted and they did this and they did that and it didn't make a difference in that particular situation. They may experience emotional numbing, irritability, and feelings of hopelessness and purposelessness um, in addition to just a shattered self-identity. The failure to assimilate a loss can create an identity an identity crisis, and problems with self-regulation. When people have difficulty assimilating the fact that, okay, um, this happened, what next? Then they may not, they may have difficulty moving on. If they can't get to the point where they can say, all right, it happened, it is what it is, 
how can I improve the next moment? If they are struggling trying to fight or change or alter the past, alter what happened, then they get stuck in this complicated grief. If we are talking about other losses, like a, a, a divorce, somebody may say, who am I? If I'm not John's wife anymore, if I'm not Sally's mother anymore, maybe uh, Sally was John's daughter and that was her stepdaughter. I don't know. But it's um, a need that we have to help people recreate their identity that includes whatever that was that they lost and the fact that it's gone. And, you know, when I talk about grief, a lot of times I talk in terms of storyboards and in terms of television series. And when that person was in their life, that was one season. And then all of a sudden, you, look, you know, they have the cliffhanger where there's a loss at the end of the cliffhanger. There's some sort of tragedy. And then the next season starts and you see how all the characters integrate and assimilate to the loss of that character or to the change in that the direction of that storyboard. And it's really important for us to help people figure out what is this next season? What does this next next chapter look like? Another question that might happen if the person is having difficulty assimilating things is, for example, who is there to protect me now that both of my parents are gone? If they are, especially if they are younger, but even as we get older, when both of our parents have passed away, there's this shocking moment that you don't have, you know, mom or dad anymore. In essence, you're an orphan. Now, you may be 40 years old now, but it is a, can be a paradigm shift for some people. Complicated grief can be reliably identified by administering the inventory of complicated grief more than six months after the death of a loved one. What we're looking at, what we're looking for in the inventory of complicated grief is, is this person stuck in the process of grief? Are their symptoms continuing without remitting? Are they, have they lacked the ability to integrate this loss into their life and into their schema? There's significant overlap between grief and trauma. In one study, 53% of participants had significant elevations in trauma symptoms. And it's important to remember that losing a therapist or discharge can also trigger past complicated grief reactions. If this person is you know, developing themselves and figuring out who they are and they develop a trusting relationship with their therapist, which we hope they do, then when discharge happens, it can trigger some complicated grief because all of a sudden this meaningful relationship is going away. If the therapist gets fired or moves or gets ill and can't see them anymore and all of a sudden is basically ripped out of their life, that may parallel prior traumatic react, um, events that have occurred in their life. We do need to be conscious of this. Another area where we can sometimes see uh, complicated grief reactions triggered is if we're doing group therapy and one member of the group relapses or drops out, that may affect everybody else in the group. It's definitely something we need to process as a loss to help people integrate it. The first and most pressing question in a crisis is what in the world just happened? What just happened? After 9-11, I remember sitting there looking at the TV going, what just happened? Uh, after the elections, I know people were sitting there sort of dumbfounded. When 
people die, when people get a diagnosis that is terminal, when they lose a job, there's that moment of shock when they're sitting there going, okay, what just happened? I'm not sure. The brain wasn't expecting that, so it's hard to process it. Immediately following is the question, okay, how can I manage this right now? What do I need to do to keep putting one foot in front of the other? And if you've dealt with losses in your family, if you've dealt with death, then you're aware of, okay, let me take a breath. The first thing we need to do is you know, either call law enforcement or call the funeral home or call hospice or whoever it is. There's, you have a plan for what you need to do. And in that immediate aftermath, a lot of times people are not looking a week, a month out. They're looking a minute, five minutes out. What is the next thing I need to do? Because they are just trying to maintain some level of control. Finally, once they get past the initial stuff they have to do to deal with the grief, um, think about if somebody comes home and they learn that their house got struck by lightning and is burned to the ground. It happened to a neighbor of mine, and it was just devastating for them. First question was, oh my gosh, what just happened? The next question is, what do I need to do now? And that was figure out where to sleep tonight. Uh, call the Red Cross, call the, you know, the fire department was already there. And there was a list of things that they needed to do. But after they got through those initial tasks, all of a sudden it became, wow, everything hit them. And it became a sense of, I was completely powerless. Look at everything I lost. I can't believe that I don't have the pictures of my kids anymore or whatever it is that they lost in in the incident and in this particular case in the fire which moves to or begs the question without those things how do i go on and that's that next chapter or that next season in in the storyboard how do you go on without that person or thing in your life grief takes time normal grief if you will the whole first year can represent reminders of one loss after another and that is very normal we're not talking about complicated grief at that point you're going through anniversaries you're going through holidays you're going through reminders of the fact that that person or thing is not there anymore it's important to be aware and help our clients be aware of special occasions and holidays all year long you know, we don't need to bring it up to them every time, but we do want to make sure that they have a safety plan or a self-care plan when these times come up, whether it's Valentine's Day or, you know, maybe Easter was big for them or the anniversary of when they met or their wedding anniversary or Thanksgiving or Christmas. Or, it, the list goes on. There, almost every month, there's some kind of reminder of something. Uncomplicated mourning or uncomplicated grief, you know, remember mourning is, are the activities that you go through. Grief is the feeling. Mourning is the process. Uncomplicated mourning often takes two to three years. We're definitely that first year is just bing, 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 constantly being reminded. But the next year, it's often in, in people who have, have uncomplicated mourning, the next year is easier, but it's still not easy. The third year, you know, it's starting to get a little bit easier. And by the end of the third year, the loss has often been integrated. Now, it can happen faster than that, but 
if it goes on to five, seven, nine years or ongoing, then that's what complicated mourning is. Grief may continue for a lifetime through major life milestones. Um, I've shared with you before that my stepfather um, unfortunately lost his first family in a fire on Christmas Eve. Every Christmas is hard for him. And, you know, that was 60 years ago. But every Christmas is still hard for him. And you can definitely understand where certain things are, you know, it's hard to completely integrate that into your memory because, you know, Christmas reminds, you know, Christmas lights, Christmas things would remind him of what's going on. And to what Andrew says, yes, we experience losses daily, um, which can be really challenging. We lose, we have a lot of losses. And some losses are not a huge big deal because, you know, maybe you've gotten a car accident and your car was totaled. Yes, that is unfortunate. And that was a traumatic event for the car to be totaled. But losing the car, you know, you can get another car. Yes, there may be memories associated with it. We lose, you know, at, at work. People may quit. People may retire. That's a loss. We process it. If somebody retires, you know, we miss having them there, the grieving part. But another part of us is really happy that, you know, they're able to retire and go fishing or do whatever they wanted to do. Um, and, and to the second part of what you asked or, or put forth is a really good observation that complicated mourning can become generational mourning. When somebody is stuck in their grief, in their mourning process, they are less able to be emotionally, physically, and interpersonally present for the, their loved ones, for their children, which means their children are probably experiencing some level of adverse childhood experiences, as they would say. One of the criteria or experiences that was assessed in the ACEs survey was did the care did one or both caregivers have mental illnesses and when that child um, grows up you know that causes problems with the child it causes the child to see things in a certain way and it creates schema in their mind that may may make them feel um, unsafe it also predisposes them to mood disorders and things because they grieve they may not be grieving the same thing but they may be grieving not having the childhood that they wanted to have and it can be intergenerational Um, and it's certainly possible for children um, especially younger children renee points out she had a child who was afraid of dying because her mom lost a child to miscarriage uh before she was born and you know yeah for a kid that can be really scary because it's hard for them to understand how tenuous pregnancy is and how frequent miscarriages are unfortunately Um, and it can be really terrifying to think that okay mom had this baby in her belly at one minute and then all of a sudden not mom may also be hypervigilant because since she lost a baby to miscarriage, she feels um, a whole lot of anxiety around protecting the current child, which again can cause that child to develop anxiety symptoms as you saw. Grief impacts us holistically. 
socially, physically, cognitively, emotionally, and spiritually. All of these needs overlap. And it's important to remember that our social needs, if they're not getting met, are may impact our ability to buffer stress. It may impact us physiologically. Um, our spiritual needs. And spiritual doesn't have to be a higher power. It can just be our sense of connection to the world. But it does impact us holistically and spiritually. Physical responses to grief, appetite disturbances, fatigue, lethargy, sleep disturbances. Sometimes, you know, depending on what the tragedy was, depending on what the loss was, it can make people a little bit um, anxious about going to sleep because they're afraid they won't wake up. It can make people afraid to go to sleep or not want to go to sleep because they start thinking, well, you know, maybe I don't have that much longer left on this earth, so, you know, maybe I shouldn't sleep and I should just try to live life as much as I can right now. There can be a lot of different cognitions that surround figuring out how to deal with loss. The influx of colds can be prevalent, especially for children. When we're under stress, our immune system goes down. When children are stressed, because of the grieving process, they may be more likely to get colds. We may be more likely to show anxiety for obvious reasons. Gastrointestinal disturbances. When we are stressed, we are more likely to have an upset stomach, whether it's because of grief or anything else. And like I just said, a compromised immune response and increased illness. We also may see increased um, autoimmune diseases in people, you know, upsurgences of symptoms in autoimmune diseases. Intellectually, there may be confusion about what is real. Did this really happen? Um, am I safe? Do When I close my doors at night and I lock them and I go to sleep, am I actually safe? Is this feeling of safety real. There may be difficulty concentrating. People read the same page several times. They may have a short attention span. They can't finish a 30-minute program. Uh, difficulty learning new material, short-term memory loss, difficulty making decisions, lack of a sense of purpose, and inability to find meaning in the events and life itself. And these, most of these are things that we can help people with. Confusion as they start talking about what is real, helping them process what is real and what does real mean to them at that moment. Concentration, uh, maybe they are going to have difficulty concentrating right now. If they understand the function and why that's happening, their body is on fight or flee, it's not time to focus. Um, it may help them understand why they're not concentrating well. If they're not getting enough sleep or quality sleep, that's going to impact their attention and their concentration. We help them see the connections, then we can help them, A, make plans for how to deal with it. You're having difficulty concentrating right now. What can you do to help yourself out? You know, maybe eliminate distractions. Maybe chunk the material into five or ten minute segments. Um, I know when I've had difficulty concentrating at work, for example, and I've had notes to do, I would do a note or three notes, and then I would get up and walk around or do something else in order to give my brain a break for a period of time. We can help people if they're having difficulty learning new material and difficulty with short-term memory. Encourage them to write things down. Let them know that 
their memory and their ability to learn is likely going to come back. But right now, their brain and their body is sort of in a period of crisis. And they can think of that as dysfunction or however they want to think about it. But it will heal. It just it takes time. We can help people reestablish their sense of purpose and the meaning in the events and life itself. And that's more of a long-term counseling goal. But what is it that you still can do? What does a rich and meaningful life look like to you now, even or and, however you want to say it, with the fact that that loss occurred, that per- person is not there, that thing is not there anymore. How can you live, continue to live a rich and meaningful life? For somebody who had a mastectomy, you know, there's a grieving process. Okay, you know, that was unfortunate. You wouldn't have wanted it to happen. It did. How can you have a rich and meaningful life and not have one or both of your breasts? Those are questions we can help people start to explore. Socially, during grief, people may withdraw. They may just want time to themselves. They may isolate. They may, on the other hand, search. Instead of withdrawing and trying to you know, wrap themselves in their own little emotional cocoon, they may start searching for someone or something to make them feel better. They may avoid other people because they just can't, they can't take the pity. They can't take talking about it. They can't take all of the, you know, well-meaning people trying to help out. It's just too much. They may be irritable, self-absorbed. And in the case of especially children, they may become especially clingy. Uh, However, we do, as I said Earlier in the presentation, we do also see this in adults, especially in the immediate aftermath. If there's some sort of tragedy, then one partner may seem to be more um, looming than before. They may want to know exactly where you're going, when you're going to be back, yada, yada, yada. When my grandfather developed Parkinson's and it got really bad, he also developed agoraphobia. He couldn't leave the house. And there were some losses there, but he was terrified he would lose my grandmother. And if she went to bingo and didn't come back exactly on the dot when she was supposed to be there, he would freak out. He would get anxious, start pacing the floor like a caged cat, get very angry. Same thing if she went to the grocery store and he thought she was gone too long. He wasn't trying to control her for nefarious reasons. He was terrified because he felt helpless because his ability to live independently was no more. And that was something that he hadn't figured out a process to work with. And he felt very dependent upon her um, in order to, you know, get his basic needs met. Emotionally, it runs the gamut. Depending on the person and the day, people can be angry that the loss occurred. They can be depressed, feel helpless, helpless, apathetic, sad. They may cry or be irritable. They may be afraid that they can't go on or afraid that they're going to die. They may be lonely in because of this particular loss, especially if it's a loss of a relationship you know, through death, divorce, whatever the case may be. They may feel lonely for a period. They also may feel relieved in some ways, and sometimes people feel really guilty for feeling relieved after both of my parents had terminal cancer and when they passed 
I will admit there was definitely a sense of relief. Grief, yes, but relief because both of them were suffering so much and there was no hope for either one of them coming back. I mean, that it was the terminal kind. Um, so there was a sense of relief, but it also, you know, in the situations, um, felt very inappropriate to even express that sense of relief because everybody else seemed to be grieving so much. And we need to help people acknowledge their feelings and accept that it's okay to feel relieved. You know, yes, it's sad that that person's not there anymore, but it's also okay for you to feel that. People can feel guilty for, you know, the things they didn't say to that person or the things they did do to that person that they regret. Um, They can feel guilty for surviving when somebody else dies or loses something. We have some friends right now who uh, were in a car accident and the wife broke her back in the car accident and through... It took two and a half years for her to be able to walk again. And now she experiences excruciating chronic pain. And her husband feels extraordinarily guilty for what happened. And, you know, it's been nine years now. And they both kind of seem to be stuck in that um, complicated grieving process where he feels guilty, she feels angry, and they're both, you know, in it together. Spiritual beliefs may be challenged. The question why often reverberates. Where was God? If God is all-powerful, why allow this? If God loves me, how could this be? My prayers weren't answered. Oh my gosh, we went through pretty much every single one of those questions a few times when we used to foster. And fostering orphan kittens and puppies is a very tenuous act because it's A lot of them don't thrive without having their actual, you know, mother with them, no matter how much you feed them or tube feed them or try to care for them. And my daughter would just be completely devastated when we would lose, when when, when we would lose a a neonate, which is why we actually stopped doing it for a while, because it was just too hard on her and it was too hard on me to see her struggling so much. And those were the questions she asked me. You know, I remember one time she was, I think she was about six, and she just looked up at me and she said, why did St. Francis take him? St. Francis had plenty of other critters to love on. And I was just like, oh, well, sweetie, I don't know. And I didn't like that answer either. But, you know, we talked about it together. But a lot of people who have a faith in a higher power, whatever they call their higher power, um, may have difficulty coming to grips with what happened when they believe that it's wrong. If they believe that what happened, this was a good person that was taken too soon or, a you know, an innocent baby, uh, it can be very challenging for people to make sense of it. And sometimes the best referral, if they believe in a higher power, is to bring in their spiritual leaders. Sometimes we are not the best guide um, for that kind of thing. Sometimes, you know, we can work through it in, um, in session, but uh, be open to making referrals. Remember that death and grief are unique. Each person's experience is his or hers alone, and each experience is unlike any other. I told you both my parents died of terminal cancer, but both of their death trajectories and both processes were very different, not only because they're 
sickness was a little bit different, but also because the environment was very, very different um, when, when my father died versus when my mother passed on. Each experience was very unique. We can never know exactly how someone else feels. We want to ask, you know, tell me how you feel about that. People may not cry right away. They may never cry, and that may be okay. They may have already made their peace with the fact, and as in the case with my father, um, well, I did a fair amount of crying, but by the time he passed on, um, I had in large part made peace with the fact that this disease was going to take him and i was relieved when he was finally able to be at peace but that was my reaction my stepmother's reaction was very different and it's important just to be open and and accepting of how people are feeling the term complicated grief has to do with grief that does not follow the normal course or process to successful completion remember um the stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And we don't necessarily go through this in a linear fashion with my father. I bounced back and forth between all of those, all going all the way back to denial on multiple occasions. You know, I didn't want to go to his house. I didn't want to go down to South Florida anymore because... You know, somewhere in the back of my mind, I had this little fantasy that he was still there. You know, cognitively, I knew that wasn't the case. But if I didn't have to be confronted with it, then I didn't have to deal with it. So that was sort of the denial aspect. And that's not all that uncommon. We want people to recognize that, you know, they can bounce back and forth. And remember, again, that the normal course is not just a couple of weeks. It's two to three years before people integrate major losses, and that's perfectly normal. Now, remember in the DSM-5, they changed it so you actually can have bereavement and uh, major depressive disorder concurrently. So that's, you know, just one of those little side things. Models for, quote, normal grief. Bowlby, with his attachment theory, William Worden suggested four tasks. Wolfett identified six reconciliation tasks, and Rando identified another six R's. So we're going to talk about each one of those. Bowlby. Now, most of us recognize him from attachment theory and the monkeys and all that stuff. Attachment relationships help regulate psychological and biological functioning. They enable us to develop mastery and performance success. They help us when we're learning and performing. They help model our relationships with others. You know, that forms our first love map. They may help with our cognitive functioning. In a securely attached relationship, that caregiver is consistent. They are there. They are listening. They are um, attentive to the emotional, physical, social needs of the person. They are responsive when that child is upset or when that person is upset. In the case of adult attachment, the friend, family member, caregiver, whomever, is responsive to that need, and they help re-regulate. They can be there for emotional support, practical support. They are empathetic. They can help identify and empathize with what's going on, and they assist with solution generation. So I use the um, mnemonic CARES, consistency, attention, uh, responsiveness, empathy, and solution generation. But when you have those things, all of these other things are so much easier. 
cognitive functioning. If you are stressed and you're not thinking straight because you're grieving, then these attachment relationships can step in and go, let me help you figure out what to do next. You know, we've all been in that place at one point or another, unfortunately, where we have been so distressed that we couldn't think clearly and our support stepped in and helped us. They can assist with coping and problem-solving skills, that solution generation, helping us figure out, all right, it is what it is. What do we need to do now? Self-esteem. Our attachment figures are there. They're being consistent, responsive. They're showing us through empathy and their actions and their words that we are worthy and we are lovable, and they are helping us generate solutions and helping us feel empowered. They help with emotion regulation. Believe it or not, they help with sleep quality. When we feel safe, we can sleep better. When we have secure attachment relationships as children or adults, and adults, it doesn't go away. When we feel securely attached to others, we can rest easier. And because we are resting easier, because our HPA axis isn't all over the place, because we are hopefully moving forward towards a resolution, even though it may be slow, a lot of times attachment helps with reduced pain intensity because it keeps that um, inflammation at bay. It helps regulate the HPA axis so the person is not feeling intense pain and their serotonin levels aren't going completely through the floor. After a trauma uh, people experience or go through exploratory behaviors, which are reciprocally linked to attachment. After you lose something, you may reach out and think about a child when they lose something. They go to mom. Mom, I can't find my, my whoopee, whatever the whoopee is. Um, that's an exploratory behavior. They're going back to their attachment figure who is there to help them find whatever it is. And if it's a loss, you know, help them find the attachment figure is there to help them connect. Attachment and safety stimulate a desire to learn, grow, and explore. Caregivers provide support and reassurance, encouragement, and pleasure. Among adults, caregiving is at least as important as being cared for. It's really important to help people remember that if you're working with adults, it's not just about having somebody come help you and care for you. A lot of times we want to help people, even people with dementia, do as much as they can to do for themselves, but also to do for us. And we want to help them see how they are meaningful and important in our lives. When there's loss of an attachment relationship, it disrupts attachment, caregiving, and exploratory systems. All of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, you know, that just got cut loose. How I'm off balance right now. And if it was a significant attachment relationship, then there is a void there for a minute and the person may need to figure out what to do about it. Attachment activates separation response and impacts restorative emotional, social, and biological processes. When people are attached, they connect with that attachment figure. All of a sudden, they can breathe, they feel safe, and they can start re-regulating their emotions and um, reaching out. The phrase for a minute is colloquial, and it means for, for a while. Um, caregiving produces a sense of failure in caregiving and can include self-blame and survivor guilt. When there's an attachment relationship, and uh, that attachment relationship is between somebody you care, care give, you give care to, 
you can have a sense of failure um, if that person goes away. If you are a spouse and your partner dies, you can have potentially a sense of failure and self-blame, survivor guilt. My, my stepfather's going through that right now. He's like, why did she go and not me? Um, and it's important for them to understand that when this relationship involved caregiving and it's disrupted, guilt is not uncommon, neither is self-blame. So let's look at that and deal with those issues. Worden's four tasks for grief. Experience the reality of the loss. Be mindful. Be in the moment. Experience the pain of the loss. <clears throat> a lot of people don't want to do that, but it's important. Adjust to an environment without the person or thing. And eventually withdraw emotional energy from that thing and invest it in new relationships. Now, that can sound really cold, but what we're looking for is an instead of perseverating on this person or this thing is not there anymore and using our energy recapitulating that, focusing on, all right, what can I do with that? I could stay focused on the fact that my parents have died, and but that that's not going to bring them back. That's going to be using a lot of my energy, and it's not going to do any good. I can use that energy to nurture the positive memories and share those with my children in order to keep my parents' present presence ever present in their life so that's how i can use that energy it's not that we are withdrawing our energy and saying you don't matter anymore we're taking that energy and instead of keeping it in the past we're saying how can we take this issue and move it into the future we if somebody has a mastectomy they can be very angry about it and they can grieve about it they can maybe adjust to living without a breast or without both breasts but at a certain point, it's going to be important for them to move their focus from I, had, I don't have my breasts anymore to, okay, what can I do with this energy? Instead of being angry about this because I can't change it, what, how can I use that energy in a way, as they would say in acceptance and commitment therapy, how can I use that energy in a way that is going to move me closer to those things that are important to me in a rich and meaningful life. Wolf at six rec reconciliation tasks. Acknowledge the reality of the death. Okay, this is pretty common. The first thing we got to do is acknowledge that it happened and accept it is what it is, that mindfulness. Move toward the pain of the loss while being nurtured physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Once we realize that it's happened, we still often feel shock or sometimes feel like we got hit in the gut. And it's hard to feel much of anything at that point because we're just tense, cognitively, physically tense. There's a period of moving toward the pain of the loss, accepting that it happened. Like, you know, after a death, you go through that initial day and then you start cleaning out the person's stuff. I remember after my grandmother died, it took my grandfather about a year and a half before he was ready to move toward that the pain of that loss and actually remove her stuff from the house. Um, and... That's one of those things. It was very painful for him to go through. When he was ready, he moved through it. Convert the relationship with the person who has died or the thing that you have lost to one of presence, to one of memory. So instead of the person being tangibly there or the thing being tangibly there, okay, it was there. But how has it affected who I am and how has it 
helped me be the person that I like to be. Develop a new self-identity based on life without that person or thing. Relate the experience to a context of meaning. What does this mean in my life that this thing is gone? Um, it can mean, it can t- teach me that, you know, we need to leave, live, live life to its fullest. It can teach me about how important that thing was to me and how many positive ways that it impacted me. It can, you know, there's a lot of ways. What is this thing, what is this experience supposed to teach me or what kind of meaning can I draw from it? Maybe the meaning you draw from it is seeing the courage somebody expressed during their last days or weeks. It's just dependent on the person. And finally, experience a continuous supportive presence in future years. It's important that people have support. Rando's three phases and six processes. In the avoidance phase, the first thing we need to do is help people recognize the loss, accept that it happened. In the confrontation phase, you know, once they get past that shock and denial, they react to the separation, recollect and re-experience whatever it was, the loss, And the relationship. What did that thing or person mean in your life? Relinquish the old attachments to whatever it was that was lost and the old assumptive world. That's the grieving process. That's the pain process that we talked about back here in moving toward the pain while being nurtured physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Want to make sure that during this process, people are getting nurtured. They're not just moving through pain and, you know, running out of gas. And finally, in the accommodation phase, people readjust to move adaptively into this new world, into this new phase, into this new season, chapter, whatever you want to call it, without forgetting the old. What happened, every experience we have impacts us and changes who we are just a little bit. And it's important to reflect on that and then reinvest that energy. You're not spending it with your, you know, significant other anymore because they have left. You know, they're gone for whatever reason. They may not have died. They're gone. Okay. That energy that you would have spent, invested in them. How can you use that now? How can you use that to move you toward what you define as a rich and meaningful life? In the avoidance phase, we want people to recognize the loss by acknowledging the death, understanding the death, and understanding the losses as a result of the death. Remember, there can be a multitude of losses. If you lose a, you know, let's go back to the mastectomy, you know, because talking about losing people is so much easier. Um, if you lose a body part or function of a body part, um, that is a loss. You need to acknowledge that loss. You need to understand what that loss means to you. It's, it's not there anymore. You can't walk or you can't, because if you're paraplegic or you can't, um, you know, do whatever. What does that loss mean to you? How does that impact your life? And then understand the other losses as a result of that loss. Um, Somebody, let's go with paraplegia. They lose their ability to walk. Okay, they need to understand that that function, that activity in their life is no more. What other things did they lose because they cannot walk now? They're losing their potentially, at least initially, some of their independence until they get used to transferring from the wheelchair to the the tub or whatever it is. They may not be able to play certain sports that they used to. They may need... Um, 
they may not be able to drive the car that they want to because they have to have special equipment and plenty of storage for the for the wheelchair there are a lot of different losses that may occur encourage the person to react to the separation and experience the pain sit with it for a minute and this is where the art therapy activities come in really handy help them feel identify accept and give some ex form of expression to all of their reactions to the loss it can be grief it can be resentment it can be um, guilt it can be relief all of those feelings let's give some form of expression to them and help them identify and mourn those secondary losses have the person re uh, recollect and re-experience the the loss and the relationship by reviewing and remembering realistically what happened um, help them revive and re-experience positive feelings as they're associated with it now this is more in terms of death if it's a divorce it this may not be the most helpful stuff but help them review the relationship realistically relinquish the old attachments to whatever was lost and that old assumptive world readjust to move adaptively into the new world without forgetting the old by revising your assumptions about the world that maybe everyone is you know has the same thoughts and feelings that you do develop a new relationship with what was lost in the term in terms of a divorce for example you may revise your assumptive world that you know you thought you were going to be with that person for the rest of your life well it ain't so so now figuring out how to revise your expectations develop a new relationship with the loss you are no longer in a marital relationship with this person what is your relationship with them now and it could only be in your own mind maybe you don't talk to them at all anymore but what is that relationship is it one of hatred is it one of acceptance is it one of you know what does it look like adopt new ways of being in the world you are no longer so-and-so's spouse you are no longer married what how are your actions and activities going to change and what is this new identity that you have and let's take that energy instead of being stuck in and using it to hold on to being upset about the loss let's use that energy to grow and make this new identity flourish when we work with people who are grieving we want to assess around the six r's and determine where the mourner is stuck and not making process progress so we go back here you know are they here we go have they recognized the loss most of the time yes have they gone through recollecting and re-experiencing the deceased and the relationship have they relinquished old attachments to this to the deceased and the assumptive world this is where i find a lot of people get stuck but in any event when you do your assessment you're going to assess around those six r's to figure out where they are in their mourning process and base treatment interventions beginning where that person is and explore with the person the identity and roles of the lost loved one and the meaning of that relationship what does that mean now that that person is gone six factors for complicated mourning the survivor depending on their age they may understand it differently um, you know, a 10 year old 
is going to have a different understanding than a four-year-old who is going to have a different understanding than a 40-year-old because of our cognitive development as well as our experiences. Physical issues can complicate the mourning process. If I am physically dependent because maybe I'm a quadriplegic and that was my primary caregiver and that person dies, you know, that could make it more difficult for me. Um, emotional issues that are pre-existing may make it more difficult for people to move on because they already were having difficulty dealing with life on life's terms. Their cognitive understanding of what happened, their personality and character traits, their socioeconomic status, because with higher socioeconomic status generally comes more resources, lower socioeconomic status, fewer resources. Oftentimes, they don't have a lot of time to sit back and mourn. They've got to get back to work. They've got to get back into the swing of things because they've got bills to pay. So that can really complicate the process. Spiritual factors can also impact the mourning process depending, you know, on people's conception, conceptualization of life, death, the hereafter. The nature of the loss, what happened, you know, was it expected? Was it unexpected? Was it particularly gruesome? Was it, there are a lot of things that go into it. The number of losses, primary and secondary, that are experienced, is it, you know, a single loss or is it disrupting your entire life? If you're the primary breadwinner dies and you have to move because you can't afford to be in this house anymore, your kids may have to change schools, you may lose your neighbors, you may lose the house that you lived in for 15 years, plus you lost your best friend, you know. It can add up really quickly. The circumstances of the loss, was it expected, unexpected, preventable, not preventable? What resources are available? The nature of the relationship with the deceased or whoever was lost, how long you were in that relationship. You know, you can be in a relationship for a short period and it's still really impactful. So that's not necessarily a be-all, end-all. But if you've been with somebody for 35 years, then it's probably going to be more disruptive to your, to your life when they're gone. The importance of the relationship, the culture or roles that the person played. In some cultures, um, if the uh, male passes away, you know, the female is not allowed to do certain things. So it could be very devastating there. The quality of the relationship, the level of dependence, your hopes and dreams for the relationship, and the amount of daily change a person experiences as a result of the loss. Secondary victimization occurs when the support systems isolate, blame, and stigmatize the person. Multiple losses require multiple adaptations over time and make intervention very complex. For example, parents who divorce after a child is murdered. You know, there are lots and lots of losses and adaptations going on there. There is some level of homogeneity in support groups um, that can help normalize an experience. So if you pick a survivors of suicide support group for somebody who survived suicide, you know, they're going to get more support than if they just went to a general grief group. Remember the five areas of focus, physical needs. People need warm, healthy foods and clothing, and they have increased susceptibility to illness. Emotional needs. They may have grief bursts of emotion, and they have to be prepared for that. They may be doing really well, and then one day, all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, they have this burst of emotion. That's okay. Help them prepare for that so when it happens, they have tools to deal with it. They may have social needs if their peers cannot relate. So 
help them find a group that they can connect with. Cognitively, they may have difficulty with attention, learning new material or attention span. So have them, them write things down, simplify, and get assistance. Spiritually, be aware of the phrases that can confuse and frighten or anger people, such as God took her or God needed an angel. Um, or citing, yea, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of the valley of death, or saying only the good die young, or one of the worst to say to kids is, he's sleeping now. That terrifies them to go to sleep. Uh, we want to be aware of people's needs. They need, think of Maslow's pyramid. They need those base level things there first. Then they need safety. Then they need uh, love in order to work through this. A secondary loss is a loss precipitated by the initial loss. Anticipated loss can be defined as a death that is expected weeks to years in advance. Doesn't necessarily make it easier, but people often start grieving as soon as they are notified of the impending loss. Common physical, emotional, and cognitive reactions to anticipated loss include changes in eating, sleeping, mood, world outlook, and socialization. Common reactions to unexpected loss include shock, anger, and guilt. Details about the death or loss should be provided if the person asks, but if they don't ask, then they may not want to know. Education, normalization, and validation contribute to a normal adjustment after loss. Education about sudden loss can help people alleviate guilt, find closure and move on, understand what has happened and find peace, and normalize and decrease intense reactions. Sudden loss could be, for example, waking up next to your partner who has passed away in their sleep unexpectedly. That is really terrifying and shocking to people. We want to help people work through what's going on. Factors that affect individual reactions to a sudden loss include the circumstances of the death, personality and character traits, pre-existing issues, and the nature of relationship. A lot of times, sudden death makes people want to understand why, and sometimes there is no good answer. I know I ran a little bit over. I apologize. Is there, are there any questions? I know there was, um, there was a lot of participation, and I appreciate that. Um, unfortunately, after a death, one of sometimes some of the most traumatic things can occur from the family members. It's not the death itself. It is the um, events that take place that cause the person to feel even more out of control and unsupported when that family is supposed to be in theory in, in your estimation, they're going to be there and be supportive and instead they are not that disrupts that attachment and can cause a lot of can cause a lot of trauma and frustration it also makes you in this case when the family was more concerned about the money um it can make you rethink your your beliefs about people and their their goodness and whether they're actually they actually love one another for who they are or about money and george raises the good point uh that uh triggers like texture, smell, and color can also remind you. If you see something, you know, feel something soft that reminds you of the sweater your mom always wore or something, that can hit you kind of unexpectedly and trigger a grief reaction. Songs can also be very triggering. I know they are for me, at least. Um, the presentation slides are in the class. You can download the PDF um, when you log in to take your quiz. One of the things I... I 
tell all of my, my student interns and I try to avoid saying as much as possible. Um, you know, every once in a while, I'm sure I slip up and say it is, I understand how you feel because you're right, George, we have no idea. You know, we can say that must be hard or it must be devastating, but I understand you know, we can't begin to understand how another person feels because we haven't had their experience. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.